Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield, and today I have the pleasure of having Guy Schoen in the studio with me today. Guy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Des. Great to be here. Thanks for making time. Uh, so a quick introduction, Guy Schoen. You're the CEO of an organization called Explain the Market, and you describe yourself uh, yourselves as uh, economic researchers, uh, and your tagline says that you aim to provide expert research in tune with a fast-moving media-savvy world. And your uh, company website is uh, www.explainthemarket.com. Uh, just give us a quick introduction to yourself, if you would mind, and, uh, and then maybe just an overview of Explain the Market and the company and what it does. Sure. Um, I, I, I started life as, as an economist. Um, I spent a period of time running um, the research department for a big global investment banking group. Um, I then did what some people thought was quite a weird thing and uh, went to become the research director for um, uh, a sort of economic government agency in the UK where we, we had the challenge of trying to make the whole population more financially savvy, more financially capable, um, which was a big, uh, a big kind of uh, challenge to, to get involved in. Wow! Um, and then, and then I, uh, and then I started because I, because I've been writing reports for um, government agencies and various uh, people, including the, the part of the, the G20. Um, I ended up doing uh, work on the BBC, explaining and trying to demystify. Uh, economic events and um, financial news and things of that nature, and I ended up for a while becoming a, uh, a full-time journalist. Um, and 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 I got to a point where I, I, I sort of I I got this sense that there was a real need out there for top quality economic analysis, but something that um, was also at the same time uh, able to engage people quickly. So, you know, rather than having to wade through a 300-page report, you know, an idea that, you, you know, it, would, it should be possible to deliver quality analysis, but do it in a way where, you know, you could actually engage the media, boardrooms, people making decisions um, in, a, in, a, just in, a, in a much more impactful way. Because, you know, we're, we're all so busy. You know, hardly anybody I know has, has actually really got the time to read an 80-page report. Yeah. Um, so, so that that was kind of the thinking behind um, uh, explain the market, and um, you know we 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 also had, had done um, a lot of work around behavioural economics, and this 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 kind of overarching principle that we ought to deal with people, whether it's boardroom decision makers or, or customers, um, as they really are, and not as we think they ought to be and if we start to deal with people as they really are and understand their behavior and their preferences then we'll design things whether they're products or um, financial vehicles or policies we'll, we'll design things that actually make a better difference to people and make a better difference to the bottom line of, of, of businesses. So, so all of that thinking kind of kind of mashed together, and we, we launched Explain the Market uh, three years ago. And um, you know we've 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 been busy and growing ever since. We've got clients in the states and clients obviously in the UK, and and we've done work all over the world. And um, so um, 
you know, I'm 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 busy. I don't sleep very much. But uh, I've got two young kids. I've got two young kids, so you know, I, I was I was not destined to sleep at this point in my life anyway. No, you might as well maximise the time. Your uh, your social feed is evidence you don't sleep uh, like many of us. Um, <laughs> it, it's interesting that you some of the some of the things you just mentioned there. I mean, I, is there such a thing as a profile of the typical company you might deal with? It, it seems to me that there isn't. Um, I mean, you know, I imagine you've you've targeted a few particular key industries because they're familiar but i get the sense that this is the sort of thing that uh from an advisory and and, and research point of view that that's almost across the entire uh, spectrum of all market sectors and and industry groups isn't it 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 is you know we've got a lot of clients who are financial services clients so banks and um uh, some some new banks as well some fintech organizations and that's that's quite exciting um, but equally, you know, IBM, for example, are, are, are a client of ours, and we've got some, some also some big brand names in the uh, in the kind of fashion and uh, and even automotive space. So, it, it, this 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 need to um, understand uh, the economic environment that we're operating in and communicate um, thought leadership. I mean, thought leadership. A horrible term but it's it's unfortunately i think the only one that's available at the moment to describe this this sort yeah. of work you know the the need to communicate um research findings and um kind of explanations of of economic events in a way that everybody can understand uh seems to be you know commit cutting across all sorts of different industries now and i think 10 or 15 years ago there would be a very different approach that um, I would have if I was talking at a at a conference or doing something for the Financial Times or the you know a, a, a Bloomberg of this world than if I were talking to a a sort of tabloid organisation or a, a mass market organisation. Increasingly now, it, it's it's the the requirement to be straightforward and cut to the so what as fast as possible applies right across the board so this this you sort of you sort of don't get this sort of well if i try and use as big a words as possible or try and make this concept sound complex it'll make me look clever and i'll be able to charge more for my services that <laughs> that sort of whole that whole um you know that, that that sort of approach which i think was was kind of dominant sort of 20 years ago is is dead now yeah you know so you've you've um you've you've got there's nowhere to hide anymore whether that's in the consulting engagement or whether that's in the the text that you're that you're putting into the newspaper that um I th- <clears throat> one of the things i was talking about uh, recently with some folk uh, in this space and i think it uh, it sort of comes close to describing what you're talking about is that the rate of change and the pace of change it is so fast and so broad that uh, my, my way of describing it is that, you know, we're having to sprint just to keep up. But the key issue is we're having sure. to sprint in multiple races all at the same time. And uh, I think there are a lot of CEOs, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of CEOs and, and their C-suite uh, and, and even a couple of tiers below them who are becoming quite exhausted by this um, never-ending barrage of stuff coming at them of of coinages and terminology and three-letter acronyms sure. and 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 so I think you've got an amazing opportunity in the market here, uh, which piqued my interest in what you're doing more than anything. That uh, it's like a breath of fresh air for tonight, you know, to go to them and say, look, um, you know, let us just resuscitate where you're at. Stop and check. Check. Sure. 
And, and uh, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned a concept that I'd love to dive into, and, and it's something that apparently you were looking into recently, which is uh, uh, this idea that, uh, around the role that technology plays in the boardroom today and, and what that means to, from, a, from an operational point of view, from a decision-making point of view. Uh, I'd love to get some insight into kind of where that came from and, and, and how it's playing out currently. Well, we, we've, we've, we've been this um i've been looking at this um for, for 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 many years this this sort of intersection between leadership culture change and and, and technology um but but more recently ibm asked us to, to take a look at it into how the um the roles of the the cio and the cfo and other roles around the boardroom table uh, are, are changing, um, and, and we found we, we did, we did um, a lot of research uh, both in the UK but also in the US as well, and we found that um, just the not just the pace of change but just the, the the character of the change that these roles are going through is um, is is really un- unprecedented. So right. you know, you're you're having to, you're having to if if you were the CIO ten years ago or fifteen years ago. Um, you, you, you know, you you, you you had your your internal customers, you know, and you had your challenges, but they were fairly, fairly, you know, reasonably limited to a couple of different sections of the organisation. If you're the CIO now, every person around that boardroom table is your internal customer. Yeah. So you, you, there's very little room now between your typical. Um, fortune 500 ceo and the role of the cio you what, what you provide is the engine room of growth you provide the ability to um, get all of your operational change functions uh, and change programs delivered you're the um you need to be the best buddy of the cfo who herself is having a huge kind of uh change forced upon them you know you've, you've got um cfos now have got to do more with analytics they've got to deliver margin and growth opportunities both of those things rely on the cio and they've got to cope with this sort of multifarious scary risk environment where you're not allowed to say um which risk is a low priority you know, everything is high priority and 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 yeah. you've got this this very there's very little room for um uh sort of you know thinking about um where you might save time and save energy everything is you know extremely important and of course there's less time to get all this done in because you've got so many other uh, issues and challenges to work through too so so i think you know the, the role of the CFO, the pressure and challenges that the CIO um, is under these days requires partnership and it requires a particular type of partnership. It requires so much more hands-on support, so much more strategic support um, than, than, than ever, I think, has been the case in, 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 in the past. So, you know, it, it's a when we go out and we talk to um, CIOs, they talk, they almost talk about three types of problem that they're having to resolve right now, all sort of concertinated together. They've got this sort of day-to-day operational change program. So either a, a, it could be a, um, a, a data migration 
um, IT estate migration program that's happened off the back of some M&A activity, or it could be you know any one of a number of the of, of the big legacy change programs that, that go on in big organisations, and the way in which they need to manage that, and the way in which they need to report to the board on that, is you know a fairly typical traditional way of working and managing and leading people. But then on top of that, they've got this sort of mid-level piece, which is half delivery, half conceptual, which are you know typified by something like cloud migration strategy. Um, then on top of that, they've got very conceptual uh, pieces of work, but which are very high ticket when it comes to um, boardroom attention, which things like you know blockchain strategies would be would fit into that category. Each of those different areas of work are, are very. They're, they're not just different in terms of how they're resourced. They're different in terms of how you need to think about them and how you need yeah. to communicate your, um, your your progress. So you know you, you can pretty even even in my description of that, it's quite, it's quite an exhausting sounding. Um, set of challenges that people have got so so it means the right sort of help becomes absolutely critical um and and that's something that we're going to continue to look at as we continue this work with uh with ibm i think uh, i was making some notes while you were just uh, covering those three key points because i think they're quite salient things to just quickly dive into here if you don't mind to me when when you were sure. talking about the operational challenges number one versus uh more of a a, a digital strategy piece in number two and then number three i sort of thought more of an, an innovation and development thing when sure. you think about the cultural and behavioral requirements of each of those i mean operational change upgrading your mail server from you know uh, office one two three to office three four five that's there isn't a lot of education or evangelizing or, or transformation to be done it's we're going from email to email and you're just getting a new look and feel and some new functions versus and that that isn't very exhaustive it's just a lot of work right um but it's not like a sprinting race at a hundred yard dash it's a marathon and and we're all relatively used to those and we've been doing those for you know 60 years of computer technology history yeah. i totally agree with number two in that that um Everything from the, the high-level strategy and the policies and the governing frameworks and the evangelizing and the, the, the championing of new concepts like blockchain and IoT and smart infrastructure and smart cities and autonomous vehicles and that whole yeah. wash of, 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 you know, you could, you could list them all day, right? Um, cloud, big data, analytics, IoT, cyber risk, cyber resilience. I mean, I, you could put people to sleep by just listing them. Uh, that's how exhaustive they are. <clears throat> and I think that's the bit more than anything that's just wearing people down because now you're not just sure. doing something operational. It's like, we've got a new upgrade of XYZ, you know, traditional systems. It's a whole new religion, a whole new creed. And, and, and you've got to get people to buy into the value, you know, transitioning from old style security and data protection through to blockchain. Like, what does it even mean? You know, oh, we're going to have a, yeah. a hyperledger that logs everything. Well, at what level, you know? Um, and, and I've seen that just wear companies down on a single program of work. So when you add three or four, I can imagine that just gets off the chart. The, 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 well, the bit, state, the, yeah. it's okay. Oh, so the stakeholder burden as well as an, is another sort of byproduct of all of that in, in that as these technologies get the attention of governments and the media, that you inherit a whole load more stakeholders to try and manage than you, than you ever had before. You know, so you know, it's yeah. autonomous vehicle technology is, is, is the same, you know, with the, the beginnings of how to try and 
get groups together in industry to think about how we might self-regulate this and then the media have got some interest and then there's some testing which requires expertise and you know and then blockchain now is becoming similar it, it's it's um it's, it's a never-ending you know everybody around that boardroom table is looking at you if you're the cio and um you know it's it's a it, it's that i think is only going to get even more demanding it and and i think we're um on that point, I think you know we've seen a well. I've certainly seen a transition now, uh, where for a while you know CIOs were effectively removed from the boardroom because no one really understood what they're talking about because they were very very technical. Sure. I think CIOs are coming back to the boardroom um, for the, all the reasons you're talking about. But what I'm noticing is the type of pedigree that they have is no longer purely practitioner technical hands-on capability with a bit of business rubbed in. They're coming in with MBAs and. Uh, they've come yeah. in with a business background and they've learned enough about the technology to d- deliver these innovations and, and implementations and new rollouts and so forth. And But they can just, you know, I guess, you know, deal with the Pax Americana in, in many ways or or whatever we want to call it, langu- the lingua franca of, of the boardroom, um, that they expect plain English, no TLAs, what's going on and, and keep it, you know, explain to me like I'm a three-year-old. I don't know what that's going to mean long term, but it certainly has been a turnaround mm. where the CIO and team are being brought back into the boardroom. It, the other thing I was interested in getting your thoughts on, um, just as a, a segue, is you know what are you seeing uh, given your you know your amazing position in the space and, and and ability to get behind the boardroom door? What are you seeing with the shift in the CXO roles that are coming out? I mean, we've if we see the traditional sort of you know the the board established with advisory board and then a, an operational functional board themselves, and then you've got uh, the CEO sort of championing that, and underneath the CEO he or she might have a, a CFO and a you know a, a CIO and a, a CRO. You know, you've got so marketing, finance, information technology, etc. But now we're seeing other roles. I mean, I saw one yesterday that just made me chuckle, but then I thought mm, maybe I shouldn't laugh, and that was chief user experience officer. And you know we've. <laughs> And we, you know, obviously, a chief risk officer is a changing role now, and, and more so when you're in different industries. There's a big difference between a, a chief risk officer in banking, wealth management, and finance versus a chief risk officer inside logistics and and transport. One's worrying about not getting people run over and killed on the road in cars and trucks, and the other's worrying about, uh, you know, brand value and, and shareholder of uh, 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 return. Sure. Um, but you know, the, now we've got things like the GDPR, for example, that the the Global Data Protection yeah. Regulation, and we've seen this creation of a data protection officer role which in effect is another C-suite type role. Um, and the, the linkages of who's reporting to where, I mean, you know, you're alluding to the, the challenges that a CIO has now where they don't just report to the CEO or the CFO, they've got, you know, everyone's their customer. I saw the C- DPO or Chief Data Protection Officer come up and thought, wow, again, everybody is going to need to talk to that person. That person's going to have to champion the concept. And it's not just the, the, the likes of, of Europe's uh, uh, GDPR. It's It's, you know... We've had the EU-US Data Shield. In Australia, we've got the Australian Privacy Act. Germany's got similar things. India and China are working on similar programs now. Uh, I mean, you know, that in itself, I mean, there's such a shift in roles. I just wonder whether we're CXOing ourselves to death. Well, I think I think that's that's the the, um, the example, um, the, 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 the data regulation example is, is, is a really good one, I think, to highlight how this sort of cause and effect can can work because i think so so often now you, you get these new roles established and part of the reason for it is a need to demonstrate to the investment community uh, particularly 
uh, but also the wider media around the organization that you are that you have this very important thing under management right you're taking this you're you know that you're you're taking this as seriously as you could possibly take it and one great way to demonstrate that is to say i've we've created this new role and it's and it is a in inverted commas c-level role gotcha um so i so i think so i think there Mm. is um that's part of it now that's not that's not to suggest that that's you know the, the, the entire reason for doing it or that it's somehow superficial and without serious content but I think that's nevertheless something that you, you, you see that a lot you know that there's some there is there's some macro um, events or there is some regulatory driven change or there is some shift in some demand side shift either for or against something and and these new roles get get created um you know in a less serious way you might say that that's you know chief happiness officer things. It's, it's kind of a it's the same it's the same dynamic playing out in a slightly different slightly different way i think the other reason for the for the, for the, the c-suite getting more crowded is just an inevitable consequence of, of globalization and of managing organizations across so many different territories and you know managing organizations that have so much sort of necessary complexity i guess built in built, built into them yeah um that you you know how do you organize when you're in 100 countries and you know you're in not not just 20 different product areas but 20 different industries you know yeah. how, how do you how do you control and manage that and report to your investors um on on on, on what your on the progress that you're making so so i think that that's part of it but but then i think you know perhaps to to, to a lesser degree the, the the other thing is is just you know it has become a bit of a, a fad and a fashion to have c at the front of your of your job title um and um you know maybe that's not always a uh you know a, maybe it's not always essential to to do that you know if you've got um you know only one or two layers of, of management underneath you um well then you know it sort of it does make a bit of a mockery of of of, of sort of a situation to, to to call yourself the chief something when yeah. there are when there are either there are either no other somethings or or just one other something in the organ in the organization <laughs> it's one of those uh, too many chiefs and not enough cooks um or too many chiefs and not enough indians as they say but um so we see that in, I mean, in 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 Europe and the UK and the US and, and and even Australia, a lot of these companies that get to the size are public companies. But I've I've seen a really interesting shift coming out of of Southeast Asia, particularly India and China, more than more than ever. Uh, but Malaysia and Indonesia as well, where there's a lot of very large privately owned companies who are struggling with this whole corporate structure thing as well. And that is, you know, they're billion dollar companies, but they're actually privately owned or they're owned by a family. Um, it brings yes. me back to that original topic, though, and that is that um, when we think about this this um, interesting shift backwards and forwards around the structure of the companies and the reporting lines and the challenges of you know everybody wants to be a CXO, um, 
and, and your your research talked about um, this role that technology plays in the boardroom, and more and more, and I think you mentioned it in a previous conversation we had, we're seeing people walking around with with um, live dashboards on on digital tablets. You know, my my favorite is to see someone walking along with a, a, a you know an iPad Pro or, or an A4 sized uh, Android tablet from from the likes of yeah. Huawei or Samsung, <clears throat> and they've got all this data flowing. And and you know, I think you use the term uh, everyone everyone is now a data scientist per se, which is something that's been bandied around. Um, but it kind of brings me back to that topic that you were talking about, and I'm keen to see what you learnt uh, uh, from that research around this role that technology plays in the boardroom. Because each of these people now are not only dealing with the CIO and not only dealing with different uh, disruptions and change, but they're also having to make decisions based on data. And you know, we, we hear the phrase "data-driven decision-making." And I'm, I'm wondering what you've learnt or what you've gleaned from the, the recent research you did in this space as to what impact that's having. Is it good or bad? Are we doing something crazy? Well, we're just, you know, we are suffering a glut think- of data. I think I think I think yes we are we're we're but I, I think I think I I think there is a real opportunity but we're not that we're not quite grasping yet and I, and I think we've we've we're emerging from a period where you know big data um, combined with great analytical tools um, has sort of got everybody very excited and yeah. engaged because the tools are better. And the, the 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 analytical capability is better. More and more people are now engaged. And as you as you know as, as you said, and I've said this before too, that you know, everybody now is a is a data scientist. Everybody is able to come up with their own analysis and um, their own insights. So everybody sort of understands what's possible. Right. Um, the problem the problem with that is that you still have to make a decision. Yeah. So. What, what, what I think we, where I think we, we need to move to now, and I think some companies are starting to do this, is that combination of great data, great analytical tools, but also not to neglect the art and skill of decision making, which is a skill in its own right. And if you're, if you're trying to grow a business, a small business very fast, if you're trying to um, maintain uh, a, a huge, large, complex organization, the, the, you can't really do that very successfully for very long if you're letting the database make the decisions for you. And I think yeah. in some cases, we've slipped into that culturally, where we, we sort of we sort of get into this idea that, you know, that, that data equals fact equals truth, you know, and, and actually, uh, that, that that's of course wrong, you know. That, that we um, that we need to be able to understand that we've got hundreds now of people in the organisation, or thousands of people in the organisation, or tens of thousands of people in the organisation who are able to see what we can see and come up with their own conclusions and report ideas uh, to us. But ultimately, we as a, a C-level team need to make a call. Um, and and we need to develop that muscle uh, yeah. just as, as much as we're developing the, the technology that's helping us to, uh, to, to make those decisions. There's, <clears throat> I had a funny line a couple of years ago. I was at a thing by a group called... Um, uh, Chile uh, here in Chile in Australia, and they do like a an electronic law or a, a forum, and uh, this kind of just popped out of my head. And then someone tweeted it or reminded me I'd said it. But um, uh, when it comes to data, um, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where you know, if you torture data long enough, it will eventually speak. Um, 
but the challenge is to know how long to torture it, right? And um, I remember having a conversation around this topic with um, an associate of ours, uh, Dr. Bob Hayes in the US, and he said, you know, something along the lines that, you know, it doesn't matter which angle you come at your data from, it will tell you a story, but the challenge is to know what story you want it to tell you. And it, I kind of looked and went, what does that mean? But it, 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 it reminds me of two things, you know, spreadsheeting and PowerPointing. Um, you know, often it's, it's like that scenario of somebody in a high-vis jacket with a clipboard in a, in a crowd often is the person everyone goes to to ask, you know, where are the bathrooms and where can I get out here? Uh, so, so some guys in Australia did an experiment recently where they put high-vis jackets on and walked around clipboards and they got into almost everywhere. They got into shows for free. They got into um, uh, some really, really big events. They got into some highly secure spaces and, and no one questioned them um, because they just presented data that, that gave an outcome that they wanted in this perception. And, I, you know, I think... We are at a point now where, um, as you said, you know, we don't necessarily know how to make decisions on, on that data. Often if it's the typical five Vs of, of high velocity, high volume data and it, it, in high variety, it, you know, there's so much of it coming from so many angles. I mean, imagine when you're making a decision on just, you know, security sensors or, or something to that effect and, and you're getting all this input. It reminds me of standing in front of uh, some environments I built in my, my previous lives around security and, and, and IT infrastructure where we used to build network operation centers. And we built a, a security mm. section of that. And, you know, you'd have this, what we call a NOC, network operation center. In the NOC, we would um, have lots of big panels and projectors showing things like routers and switches and servers and firewalls and uptime. And it would just be this glut of graphics and information. But, of course, you know, when things went red, it gave you a quick indicator of what to go and chase and, and put out fires. But when we did the same thing for what we called a security operation center, uh, a SOC, we found that it was the inverse. You know, in, in the network operation center, when you saw a red bot, you could chase it down and find out which router had failed or switch or server had failed. In the security space, it was almost a case, well, you are always under attack. You were always being port scanned. Yeah. You were always being probed. And so people got to this point where they just had decision fatigue. You know, they, they couldn't work out which way to go, when to go, how to go. It's kind of like making a decision in the middle of a tornado. If it's spinning around you, it doesn't matter which direction you're going, you're going to get caught up in it. Um, yeah. I've had a couple of scenarios where we've done little workshops with people and uh, we've done them in half an hour sets, half an hour before lunch, half an hour after lunch. And the first half now we bring everyone, we bring everyone a, a laptop and, or, or a tablet and say, right, here's a BI or CRM or analytics tool or some form of, of utility that gives us lots of data, lots of decision making. And here's some pre-built dashboards. Here are three scenarios we need to play through. Each of you write down on a piece of paper and stick it on a post-it note on the, on the left wall what you think the problem is and then go to the right wall and stick on the answer you would put forward. And invariably we found that if there were 10 people, we'd get 11 answers. And the high, yes. whole point of that was illustrating that, you know, every single person interpreted, interpreted the same data and the same dashboards in different ways and made different decisions. And then we took all the technology away and we did the same thing with three other scenarios. And we found that invariably more than 50% came out with the same problem being understood and the same answer coming out. Ergo, they were able to make decisions. And then we didn't highlight yeah. that technology was the problem. It was more so their ability to deal with technology and the training and the skills and the experience they had around it and the speed at which things are happening. Um, so, that, you know, I, so, I don't really know where this is going to take us, but um, it was just an interesting wake-up call for me as well. And it's like, well, you know, what decisions am I making based on data every day? Well, totally. I think this is a big area. And to me, it, it makes me think about that word context. And, and, um, and so, you know, if in the, in the type of work that, that, that I do often you'll you, you'll you'll have the, the that sort of commonly used thing on on, on slide decks where people will, will talk about correlation is not causation right and 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 everyone will agree 
Um, and there'll be normally a chart about, you know, cheese consumption with, I don't know, polar bears dying or something. And, and you'll see the two lines go together quite nicely. Um, and we'll all agree <laughs> that, that, that correlation, correlation is not causation. No. Um, but then, but then you, often what that's used to do is to justify a in, almost entirely quantitative um, piece of work. And, 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 and that's may, that may be fine for some things, but when it comes to people and decision-making, that's inherently flawed. Um, and and you, you know, you've just touched on, on, on some of that. And we, we found this a lot when we were uh, doing a lot of work around you know, financial decision-making. Um, that um, that actually the way we behave is overwhelmingly governed by emotional factors, and yet we don't like to admit that. I mean, none of us do. We like, no. we like to tell each other that we're that we're rational and logical, and and of course we wouldn't do that. And and, and often actually it can be much easier to go into a boardroom um, and tell give give a report that is not necessarily very truthful so it doesn't reflect the truth but the, but there is a lot of data backing it up yeah, um, yeah it's much it's often much easier to do that than it is to go into a boardroom and tell something that's much more truthful but but the data backing it, the, the data supporting it is qualitative in nature so it doesn't feel as valid you know, so and, and i've seen that time and time again where um you know, there are certain things where actually you don't even need a lot of quantitative data to know what the right call is. Um, but we tend we, we tend sometimes to, to, to shy away from that. And it was a huge eye opener for me doing a lot of work a few years ago, specifically on families with very low incomes and watching how they manage money and, and how they thought and felt about um, finances. And we would we would do these ethnographic studies where we just spend lots of time with people in situ and, you know, really try to understand the context of their lives. And you, you see situations, um, you know, we, we, I remember going to a, a focus group that I still still remember to this day where I was sat behind the, 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 the screen with lots of various VIPs from, there was somebody there from the US government, somebody from the UK government. You know, we're, we're, we're all sat there observing this, this study and, um, a lady at one point turned to the the, the people that she knew was, were behind the glass, although she couldn't see us, and said, um, "said you, you, my daughter wants to go on a school trip uh, on Monday, and it, it's it's going to cost a hundred pounds, and I don't have a hundred pounds. And when I suggested to her yesterday that she may not be able to go, she burst into tears in front of me. Um, you say." not to um you know you, you you say that um that actually i shouldn't get myself into debt to um to, to pay for her to go but a payday lender have told me they'll have the money ready for me the day before yeah yeah so 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 they've told me they can stop my daughter from crying what is what is your counter offer um to me it's but we we realize our counter offer and, and we and, and millions have been spent strategizing and our counter offer was a very well phrased leaflet and um a nicely constructed website um 
And we thought, you know, that, that that's like going into the ring against Mike Tyson and trying to hit him with a daffodil. <laughs> you know, it's going to have it's going to have absolutely no effect at all. Yeah, and and, and at the same time, you know, so so I think I think we need we all need encouragement to be able to try and sit the data in context, and then and then we'll and then we'll be able to focus our limited energy and resources on stuff that might have a chance of working. Well, it's that scenario where. One of the outcomes of my pet little projects recently along these lines was um, I said, you know, if you put yourself in a situation where you have got a gun at your head, you are going to make bad decisions no matter what. And I can imagine that scenario with that poor parent. And we've all been in that scenario in various forms, uh, not necessarily just the financial, but just a a whole range of moral or commercial or, or just time and logistics problems of I can't get you to school soccer and to the play date and to the birthday party and afford to buy you a new dress and do your homework. Um... And so you get to that scenario where you're making decisions with that proverbial gun pointed at your head, and it's it's an impossible scenario, particularly if it's financial, but where the, someone can give you money based on a, a pending pay date, uh, a payday, you know, because nobody in their right mind wants their daughter to cry, nobody wants their daughter to be sad, and somebody's going to opportunistically give you that solution, and it's going to always, uh, uh, hands down, beat a website saying, you know, live frugally and sensibly, <laughs> no matter what you exactly do. Exactly, but... But there's a similar similar principle, and I think what, 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 why aspects of behavior, behavioral economics really, really excite me is, is that similar principles you know you, you see play out in boardroom dynamics, and amongst that sort of C-suite, and, and, and you know, and I've I used to run a department for a for a big company, and I, you know I can remember those days of negotiating and planning together and working with other teams, and and um, and. Uh, and, and often it's very unfashionable to talk about what you're going to deprioritize. Yeah. You know, so, um, you know, more and more stuff is added to your mandate, to the agenda. Um, and thinking through on your own how you're going to deliver what you've been told to deliver, you naturally think about those spinning plates that you're going to let drop. But of course, that's not that you, you can't communicate that. And, and similarly, boards, when they're communicating to their investor community, often feel, you know, I mean, we you know, have profit warnings and things, but we don't really embrace this. You know, what if we were really open about um, the challenges and, you know, could we then work together more effectively and actually really smash these targets because we're not wasting energy um, having sort of slightly dishonest conversations? Yeah, and and I think more and more companies are going to have those reality checks. I mean, I uh, and I'm not calling out for any reason other than just it was something that came to mind in a conversation recently. But Hewlett and Packard, for example, I mean they've they've had to make some very big hard decisions in the last decade, particularly the last three to five years, where you know they've they've sort of gone through that also ran process of trying to be a cloud provider and uh, and and committed to OpenStack, the open source cloud platform, very heavily. Had a platform called Helion. Uh, and then ran their own public cloud for a while. I, I stood a whole bunch of stuff in it myself for projects, only to find that sometime later they realized that it wasn't a good direction for them, and they actually shut the whole thing down, so you had a period of time to get out of there. Um, that must have been a very painful decision to make and a very painful thing to communicate. And then they you know, they broke up consumer versus enterprise, and we ended up with HP consumer mm-hmm. and HP enterprise, HPE. Uh, and, and the changes keep going and you know, they've acquired various things and been in, uh, in all kinds of M&A acquisition processes and then killed things. I, mean, I, I saw a report the other day where um, someone, I think it was like 85 or 83 things that uh, Yahoo had acquired under uh, Marissa Meyer's uh, 
uh, lead and so forth. And you know, there was a whole bunch of commentary around was this a good investment? Um, did this bring value? I can only imagine you know, the decision-making process on how they acquired it, how they then defocused it, and then how they had to report it publicly. It, it brings me to another little um, side note that uh, I made while we were chatting here around not just the role that technology plays in the boardroom, but across the business. Because in a, in a conversation earlier, sure. we, we talked about this challenge of not just decision-making on technology, but also uh, on data, sorry, you know, data-driven decisions, but also that technology is driving and underpinning almost everything we do these days, you know, whether it's blockchain or other things. And so now we've got not just the C-suite having to, to kind of be answered to by the CIO, uh, but, you know, we've seen shadow IT become a thing. You know, people started just picking up the credit yeah. card and buying a CRM online and, and, and companies like Salesforce leverage that very nicely. And I suspect they even produce that concept. But now we've got a scenario where CIOs are having to not just interface with all the C-suite, all the people under them, but they're having to be so um, uh, broad sweeping and, 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 and so deep in their depth of knowledge and, and, and technology that I, I imagine they can't actually support all that and and yeah. so you know, I think I, I read a thing the other day about Adobe where their CIO was just inundated with the demand from you know, over fifty different parts of the business. So the CEO and the board decided to um, let the CIO focus purely on on the core infrastructure and, and systems that they needed to run the, the business itself. But all the innovative and disruptive technology was allowed to be done in shadow IT form uh, without even the need of keeping the CIO up to date. So in effect. I think I read, and, and, and I could, could be quoting the wrong number, but I believe it was a, a number like 56 different CIO-type roles inside all these little divisions of the, the Adobe organization globally who, in effect, were operating like a CIO and delivering disruptive or innovative or uh, transformative or operational change uh, in the way that the CIO might have had to do previously. Now, I don't know what the impact's going to be like that, but it seems like it's, it's allowed them to disrupt themselves internally and to, to pivot on a number of things, and, and they've remained a world leader in their, their you know, key market segments. Um, but I just wonder if, if in three to five years' time, they're all going to then let those little interim CIOs go, or, or they'll move and merge into other roles, and then all of a sudden the CIO proper is going to be told, well, you've now got 56 different environments to consolidate and reduce cost and reduce risk and increase uptime. And uh, this person just sits there laughing, saying, you are kidding, right? <laughs> I mean, which part of my warning didn't you get? Sure. It's, it's, a bit, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting point, that, because I, I, th I think you, you, you see that same effect, not just in Adobe, but, but in lots of organizations across the the, the globe and and it's and it does seem to generate real disruption in, in a positive sense and better products uh, that are closer in touch with what customers need uh, this seems to be a speed of delivery um, and and just a, a, a just, it just it seems to be an all-round positive uh, thing to, to, to do the problem though you're right comes when the when you move out of R&D or you move into what you're developing, taking up uh, a, a greater share of the, um, the, the the company's revenue, then you start to face a tougher risk environment. Uh, it's harder to um, to sort of fend people off and say, you know, just let my team work on this for three months and we'll come up with something great for you. You know, it's kind of well, you know. Yeah. When, when, when what you're coming up with represents 25% of our revenue for, you know, I'm afraid I'm afraid I'm not going to leave you alone for three months uh, to come up with. And actually, what you come up with is going to have to fit this and this 
and it's going to have to um, you know focus in on that territory first rather than all territories so so I think there's an inevitable um, reality check um, coming for, um, for 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 where firms have organized uh, in, in that way but I don't necessarily think that's necessarily a bad thing and I think what you might find is that the the, the sort of effect on culture of allowing those sort of um, smaller groups to be self-contained and more slightly more free in their disruption um, actually might kind of stay with the company even after uh, a little bit more uh, of a sort of tougher risk environment inevitably sort of it sort of comes down on the um, on, on the structure of things. Yeah, the, I think there is, a, is there's going to be a come to Jesus moment at some point, though. In that, um, I mean, I, you know, I come from a, a deeply technical background myself, and I've had to you know come through the ranks and and learn about program delivery and sales and marketing and, and risk, and to the point where you know I, I've not only warned the CIO had, but I've established what I tend to promote these days, which is the officer CIO, which is not just one person, but a consortium of, or at least a quorum of three plus people who are able to function sure. in part with that, right? And what I've noticed is that you're absolutely right. I mean, this 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 demand, I mean, you know, the, the terms like celebrity experience, I mean, how do you deliver a celebrity experience when your customers are traditional banking clients, for example? Um, you know, it's like, well, I want to go to a branch to get money out. I want to go to an ATM and get money out. I want to go to internet banking. So where do you provide a celebrity experience in that space? And all of a sudden, you've got some exciting Marcoms and PR people promoting the ability to deliver that because everyone else is saying they are. You've got people who are trying to build a capability around that to give you, you know, low doc, uh, high speed decision making on cards and loans, uh, such as that uh, poor parent with a crying daughter. Um, but then, you, you know, so you've got that fail and fail fast thing happening. But somebody the other day said to me, well, you know, what we're finding inside our bank with fail and fail fast is it just means we're failing faster um, and we're not necessarily getting great yeah. outcomes. And, and I said, well, perhaps it's time just to give yourself a 90 day breather and say, let's lock things down, go into change freeze for 90 days and just regroup because are you going to lose that much business in the next 90 days coming up to the end of the Australian financial year um, in comparison to some of your other competitors who are unlikely to roll something out that quickly, you know, no matter what they sell. And it was interesting that, you know, a week or so later I got this call and, and this person said, and I won't name the brand because they haven't gone public yet, but they said, this is the best thing we've done for a long time. We, it's given us a chance to catch our breath and regroup and realize that we were just going crazy trying to keep up with the, the Joneses, as it were. And it turns out the Joneses were trying to, trying to keep up with us, and it was all just smoke and mirrors. And so, you know, in effect, we're going back to our grassroots and saying, what is called banking? And, you know, yes. what are the two or three things that people really need and want? You know, they want to do things online. That's great. Well, we don't have an app for wealth management. We don't have an app for private or premium banking. Let's do that because that's where the biggest gains are going to be for us. Whereas we don't need people in yellow cars and pink cars driving around doing pro, you know, private in-home home lending opportunities because we can hit a million people an hour with an intelligent app that's marketed right and, and evangelized right. We can only hit one person an hour with a, a one-hour session, a person in a pink car who takes half an hour to drive to your house. Um, and there's a big difference between this funky idea versus true innovation. I mean, you, you're right. That there, there is this is this is part of the problem. You, you use the analogy at the start of the conversation about the sort of ten different lanes running at once, and I think part, part of the, the challenge with that is if you if you don't if you're not able to come up for air 
and just to kind of step back, you know, periodically and try and think, okay, what am I actually doing here? And how is it really what my customers want? And is it actually all adding um, financial commercial benefit to the to, to the business? Well, then you, you you work on the assumption that you, the, that each of those lanes is is all equally important and all incredibly important. Mm. And you you burn up a huge amount of energy. You don't you never know which lane you can just close off. No, exactly. Um, and and one, of, one of the one of the um, fast growing industries where I think this is um, prevalent is is in fintech, where there've been some great product developments, um, and there's a there's, there's, a, there's a, a really fantastic and very positive culture developing of, of of innovation and some great ideas, but I think at the same time there. Part of a, the, the sort of byproduct of all of that is people are sort of forgotten to check what um, the rest of the world thinks or whether customers really want the products that are being developed. Yeah. And you're almost you're almost sleepwalking into a sort of classic problem of supply side economics where you, you've, you've got twenty thousand enthusiasts all in one big metaphorical room. Um, slapping each other on the back saying what a great job we've done and wasn't it a fantastic conference and can't wait for the next conference in October and you know aren't we all great meanwhile you've got a hundred million potential customers who frankly couldn't care less And, and 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 the fact that they couldn't care less isn't entirely down to the fact that they don't understand many many of them do and can understand and their conclusion even after understanding is that they don't think it's that impressive you know which 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 we of course find intolerable you know it's sort of what they must you know they, perhaps they don't understand how brilliant this product is it's like well, no. well perhaps they don't want it think about what this is it's it's a bank or it's a um it's a it's a, it's a way of transporting their goods or it's a so I, so I think it's really important particularly when the pace of change um is is so rapid and we have so little time to get to think things through properly it's particularly important that we try and understand context and bring that sort of contextual element into the the way in which we make, we make decisions i'm going to quote you on something actually because i remember reading uh, a report that you uh, were commissioned to produce recently for, I think it's Starling Bank. And there was a really great line there. And, and, and I actually printed that page out because it jumped out at me. And it was something along the lines that whilst in a longer and nascent industry, having moved into the mainstream, the narrative has become stuck in its own echo chamber and lost sight of its original purpose, uh, which was incom- uh, empowering customers. And, it, you know, it, it, I had I went through and highlighted bits and that. I really loved that because um, it reminded me of a scenario where I did some consulting for a taxi firm recently here in Australia who were one of the premium taxi brands and were doing really, really well. And they were first in, in innovations like um, uh, having private taxi ranks through the city where you could walk up to one of these things and you could guarantee there would be one of these drivers, a uniform driver with a clean car and so forth. And then they had um, you know a, a phone taxi service with interactive voice and then they had a web page. But they caught. They got caught up in this whole keeping up with the Ubers of the world, and they they just sunk themselves in spending money everywhere trying to figure out how to be another Uber. And when I caught sure. up with them, I said, "Well, actually, 
there's only one aspect of Uber I think you need to implement. And I gave it to them as free advice because they didn't have any money left for consulting. And I said, just just go and build a, a, an app, a mobility app, put it on iPhones and tablets and, and so forth, and just clean up your website. Because I don't think people want the Uber experience from you because you've got a long-running group of clients like myself who want this uh, this this premium service taxi uh, thing, and I won't name the brand. But um, mm-hmm. so off they went, and two months later they released an app, and they had a four thousand percent increase in uptake of of people ordering a taxi on their phone on the side of the street or in the office uh, because the messaging all came back through the app saying, yes, we've confirmed your booking. This is your driver name. They are approximately eight minutes away. So we took the Uber concepts that made sense for that taxi business and applied just the bits that they really needed. But what we did is we, we actually went through this process where they rang 100 people in every area, every major postcode and said, what are the top three things that you want from us? And it all came down to these basic, you know, okay, we'd like an app, but we want it really simple. Uh, we want it to know where we are because you can figure out where my phone is. We, we want a short list of, of the places we've been, because you know, I'm pretty much a repeat offender. Um, and I want it to be too touched. Like, you know, yes, I'm ready to go now, or, or I want to do it later, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so they had this 4,000% increase in, in re-acquisition uh, of customers already had versus new customers, just by not trying to be the Ubers of the world, but by just trying to mm. pick out the eyes of the good bits that Uber, people liked of the Uber experience without all of the, the chaff. And, and the other one that I, I, um, I've been sitting on the sidelines of uh, that isn't very sexy but, but really stirs me because education, I think, is, is a real issue globally now and particularly Australia, we've dropped out of the top 50 countries in the world with education, um, is universities. You know, we have universities in Australia mm-hmm. spending billions and billions of dollars putting more buildings in place for people to sit in rooms and auditoriums and be lectured to. And it really struck yeah. me that this was just a really dumb idea. And, and of course, you know, the, the unis don't like being told that because... The larger the university mm. you manage and the more real estate you've got, the more important you are as a vice chancellor. But my idea was, well, yeah. hang on a second. You know, we, we know online education works. What if every one of the 11,000 lecturers in Australia was sent home with a decent laptop and, and camera and headset like the one you bought today for $50? And they did two lectures, one in the morning. <laughs> yeah, one in the morning and one in the afternoon for one hour, right? So that's 11,000 people doing two lectures a day. That's 22,000 new pieces of content a day. And, of course, once you've produced it, it can be played over and over. And then you put it on the iTunes University and all the other podcasting platforms, and you sell it for $1.99 per hour per course. Now, uh-huh. I don't think it's very difficult, and I'm sure your economics background can guarantee this. My math showed that in the first year, we generate $2 trillion of uptake and new interest yeah. because we weren't just selling to the 400 kids in the auditorium. We weren't selling to just the 2,000 or 3,000 students in that university. There were 7 billion people on the planet, not just children, but adults who might want to do for $1.99 a one-hour lecture on a certain name of topic 24-7 yes. because of any hour of the day, of every day of the week, and every internet-connected place on the planet. And remember, you could do offline versions and sell it in DVD as well. $2 trillion was my rough estimate per year, just in the first year going forward, of new revenue from something we're already doing, but locking in buildings and making it really hard to register and participate and engage in. And yet they just looked at me and rolled their eyes and went, no, you don't understand universities. And I was like, hmm, I think the you don't understand bit is on the wrong foot. Um, now, to me, I want to... Yes, sorry, go. So I, was gonna say, I, I, think, I, think, I think ideas like that, and I think that's a great idea, and I think ideas like that are going to become increasingly possible as the world becomes more entrepreneurial, which, which inevitably is. You know, you've, you've got 5 to 10 million micro-business owners in the UK. You've got 20 to 30 million uh, in the US. You've got 100 million 
um, businesses, small businesses across the world who are owned just by women. You know, you've you've got um, yeah. you know, th- there are these huge changes that are, that are occurring where where, where people are are, are just they, they they're just opting out of the traditional structures um, of of society, and they they they're, they're kind of saying, well, you know what, I I want to decide how I make this work. I want to decide how I consume that information, and so I, I think you know what you've just put forward is actually really exciting. I think it fits with the, the way things are going. And it's going to be a topic for us to do a yet another show. Now, we're coming up to the hour. So one of the things I'd love to do before we wrap up is um, I love the idea of getting a bit of crystal ball gazing. If, if we were going to, um, and let's split it up into two parts, if you don't mind. Firstly, just yourself, you know, um, where do you see yourself going in the next three to five years around this whole space? What, what do you think the, 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 the key takeaways we can share with listeners today are for, for you personally, as far as what your background brings and what you can offer in, in, in a very unique form as one of very few on the planet that have got the view you have? Where do you see yourself in three to five years in this space? Well, we're going to, I do a lot of work on television and in the what you might call the mainstream press although increasingly that that term's becoming moribund i think um i'm going to be doing a lot more online and a lot more things like this where we can actually get under the skin of some of these issues and and open them up for more more and more people to get involved in um and it's always been um uh, an aim of mine with with explaining the market and what we stand for that, that that everybody should be welcome to come and take part in this debate that you don't need to be an economics professor you don't need to be a ceo that actually um we want as many people getting involved in, in understanding and and um and sort of pulling apart these these big issues as possible so that's that's going to be a, a real driving force for me um i think i think when it comes to to, to businesses i i think there's there's some some of the short-term challenges are around how do you keep delivering on those legacy challenges that you've got so how how do you how do you deal with cloud transition effectively whilst at the same time you know finishing off your sort of data migration projects that are those traditional sort of challenges that we've spoken about at the same time as 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 getting much more on the front foot when it comes to things like AV tech and, and, and blockchain, where you're going to be challenged not just to come up with conceptual projects or run, you know, randomized control trials on things or yeah. come up with strategy ideas, but actually make this operational and have us re- be reassured as a board that we can start to rest some of our, um, uh, you know, some of that, some of the real revenue that we're going to predicate our business on, you can be relied on to deliver that through this this, this new tech. That's um, that's going to put a lot of people under pressure, and it's going to be difficult to do. And and making that transition uh, at the same time as not dropping any balls um, on that sort of legacy piece is going to require a lot more emphasis on partnership. Um, and a lot more judgment about who to partner with, uh, and I think you, you've also got some some other big um, demand side trends that just you know momentum isn't just stopping on. You know, you look at um, 
mobile adoption, particularly in 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 Central African countries. You look at the increase in around those countries as well in in, in terms of um, air travel and and kind of new territories opening up where people have got ideas and money to spend and um, are hungry for uh, mobile video content you know so we're going to need to understand as boardrooms these macro trends um, and we're going to need to understand those the, the, the trends beyond just the data points beyond just the reports we get we're going to need to develop the skill of understanding and i think part of that is about effective communication so so i think you know my, my prediction and my hope is that we're going to be increasingly busy over the next few years um you know and, and it, it's important it's often important to produce thorough um economic re- reports um and 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 to sort of get our heads down and, and do very in-depth analysis but it's equally important to make sure that we engage people in these topics um, because we're, we're all we all learn more when more people get involved in the conversation. Uh, and I think you know the, the last thing I would want to do would be to end up falling victim to sort of you know some sort of intellectual snobbery type groupthink where right. you know we, we 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 sort of we 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 only hear from other people who look and sound like us. Um, and have a similar educational background and, you know, chat to each other in the same airport lounges. So, um, you know, that's a, there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on, but I, but I think, you know, um, it, it, it's really all about understanding where the world is going to a depth that's going to enable much better decision-making. Oh, the great wrap-up. So we're up on the hour. So just to close out, um, folks, if you've... Uh you would have definitely gleaned a lot from this hour to keep in touch with Guy Schoen, uh, who's the CEO of uh, an organization called Explain the Market, uh, who uh, provide research and uh, advisory services around uh, economic and, and, and key business issues around the world. Uh, visit explainthemarket.com and follow Guy on Twitter. He's uh, at Guy, G-U-I, Schoen, S-H-O-N-E. Um, I follow him. He tweets regularly. Uh, it's evidence that he probably doesn't sleep and always something interesting to say. <laughs> uh, Guy, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for making time to catch up. Likewise, Dad. It's been a real pleasure and, uh, yeah, look forward to catching up again. Indeed. we're going to. I've, I've made many notes and we're going to do many follow-on shows. So, folks, we're up on the hour. I uh, hope you got something from the uh, uh, show. We'll be um, back on air with Guy Schoen sometime soon on more topics. Uh, thanks for tuning in. And, Guy, thanks so much for making time. And um, you've been on another uh, Conversations with Des podcast episode. And thanks for your time. <laughs>